Lights, camera, action. Today on Conversations with Charlie, we have a very special guest, the co-founder of Radical Media, John Kamen. Hey, so how you doing? I'm good, Charlie. Good to see you. If it's not on a bike or across the street <laughs> at, the, uh, at the restaurant, what the hell? Exactly, exactly. Here we are, here we are Zooming. We're zooming, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, 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 thank God that uh, the, that momentary period where I was actually in the restaurant business, I got out of it. Um, but yeah. what? But, but what's there now is very nice. Uh, the, it's uh, true. It's uh, that Carlina that moved in. So, uh, that was uh, that brought 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 the the old vibe back. Yeah, they did uh, a good job. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to start off by rather than winding the clock back to talk about what you're up to now. I mean, you guys do absolutely everything in content creation. So, you know, you've got projects that you're doing with NASA. You have projects that you're doing with streamers, documentary, Broadway shows. There's, there's no area of, uh, and, and, and still steady with, I'm, I'm sure with a steady flow of commercials, what, what, uh, are you up to right at the moment? I know you, I think you had been working on something with Michael, actually, the Broadway show. Yeah, we just finished a Broadway project with uh, Michael John Moore. And, uh, but, you know, listen, we, we, um, we never have wanted to be pigeonholed into one particular genre. Uh, we are, as a company, as you may know, over the door of all of our offices, it always says radical media never established. And for me, uh, that's a mantra that we try to live by. And uh, from a content standpoint, uh, I'll admit my interests might be somewhat eclectic and uh, they lean towards the uh, nonfiction. So nonfiction is uh, obviously the area in which we are becoming better known for. But um, as you know, because you've known me a long time, um, we do lots of things here as a company, and it's part of uh, being radical and enjoying it from a standpoint of the different uh, crafts and disciplines that we represent as a company. And we did start in advertising, I'll admit. We still do a lot of advertising, and we're proud of that work still, and it amazes us uh, as to how much of it there still is for us to do. Uh, but I always used to say to my partner, Frank Sherma, that um, the entertainment business uh, was the thing that was going to keep us relevant as a company because uh, a lot of commercial production companies come and go. Uh, some have been around a really long time, but that's all they do is make commercials. I woke up one day and decided I didn't want to, you know, have my tombstone say he made a really good Nike commercial. So I began to pursue uh, things beyond uh, traditional advertising and documentary films became uh, a bit of a signature for the company. Uh, we produced uh, several Academy nominated, Academy award-winning documentaries, The Fog of War with War. Earl Morris, yes. the Metallica, some kind of monster film with Joe Berlinger. Yep. yep. Uh, I'm a one-time Grammy Award winner for the concert for George, uh, George Harrison's memorial at Royal Albert Hall. Uh, we did, uh, you know, films with 
Jay-Z fade to black and fade to black. started, you know, doing uh, our musical legacy, uh, carried on to countless uh, musical docs with uh, MTV and others uh, that we, uh, we've always enjoyed doing and still do to this day with, um, you know, moving on to the first original ground up Netflix film, uh, documentary film. The first ground up documentary film was What Happened Miss Simone uh, and uh, went on to the Academy Awards or Paradise Lost series. It went on to Academy Awards for uh, Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky. So we, we've had this um, incredible moment for ourselves in terms of our, our documentaries. And then of course, now we do a lot of nonfiction programming, crime scene and abstract and endless Sons of Sams and other, and, other and, and and the killers, whole, et cetera. And you did the whole Iconoclast series that, that's over. Iconoclast, in, in some ways, Iconoclast uh, as a series on Sundance for six years kind of kicked things off. It didn't suck that we then spent another six years with Oprah Winfrey with a little series called Masterclass. And, uh, and the, you know, and life continues. Uh, we just finished a, a new series with, with uh, Oprah this year with a guy named Prince Harry for Apple called uh, The Me You Can't See. So we, we work, uh, we're platform agnostic. We work with everybody. Netflix, HBO, Disney, Hulu, Discovery, A&E, History Channel. We're really proud of the work that we've been able to do for all of our various partners. And uh, we're enjoying a moment in which we're quite prolific uh, across uh, the company in, uh, in so many areas of uh, entertainment and, uh, and even in experiential entertainment. We, we have a new a new company that we've created called Illuminarium Experiences. So, and 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 what is uh, what is that focusing on? Is that focusing on uh, exhibit oriented, immersive situations, sort of like yeah, it, you know, with, uh, uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, stuff like that? We practice a lot of. Uh, experiential marketing for great companies like American Express and Chanel and Nike and others. Uh, and at one point I turned to the team here and I said, we should create some of our own experiential uh, concepts. We partnered with uh, David Rockwell, the architect. We created a company called Illuminarium and uh, along came a gentleman who, uh, who's uh, raised us uh, quite a bit of money and has become the CEO of the company. and. Uh, Illuminarium was born in Atlanta starting uh, this July, and uh, we're getting ready to open an Illuminarium in Area 15 in Las Vegas in this coming March, uh, with others to follow in both uh, Chicago and Houston and Miami after that. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, take, take me back to the era going back not not that i want to linger there but back to when you started were you with henry sandbank or was it even before that yeah so i guess you're really hearkening back to my roots uh you know it, there was a time in the uh in the 70s and 80s a lot of photographers were getting into this thing called television because uh it looked like it was going to stick after uh after 20 30 years of uh of television advancing itself 
a lot of photographers decided to become directors. I had worked with many photographers who uh, enjoyed that transformation of their careers. And uh, Henry Sandbank being one of them who offered me to become his, his partner way back when. And we had a company called Sandbank Cayman and Partners. We expanded that company both uh, domestically, New York and Los Angeles, but we, uh, we also had offices internationally. And at one point, uh, when Sandbank uh, reached, the, reached the ripe old age of 60-something, and as all good people think they should retire at that age, he uh, announced that he was going to kick back a bit. And uh, both my Frank uh, Sherma and myself uh, decided to transform the company into Radical Media in 1993. And we've been Radical Media ever since. And, and, and really the first... I mean, I, I was, I, you know, been around across the street from you when I started out um, uh, uh, watching the, the company grow, but it, 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 it seemed like it was really the, I guess, the late 90s, early 2000s that your pivot to going into yeah. the encrypted happened because that those are the dates when, when the docs started to flow uh, in 2000. Well, it was, and, and you know, we... We enjoyed an incredible amount of success as a commercial production company in the 90s. We, uh, we were working with great partners and produced some really uh, groundbreaking advertising work that won lots of awards and accolades. And we were very, very proud of that. I had an older brother that only an older brother could yell at you as he could. Uh, he was a very successful composer and producer in his own right. Um, and, uh, and he was worried about his little brother uh, not getting involved in uh, the more creative fields of uh, entertainment. He it was Michael Kamen, the composer and conductor and producer of little groups like Pink Floyd and a couple of big movies like, you know, yeah. the Diabreds and the Lethal Weapons and the Brazils yeah. of the world, yeah. etc. Michael, Michael, uh, you know, thought that uh, his, his little brother ought to get involved in some things more creative than just making television commercials. And uh, after his, uh, after his uh, stern warnings, I woke up in a cold sweat one night and realized he's right, I better, I better start now. And so uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, we began producing uh, films. And one of the earliest results of that was winning an Academy Award for The Fog of War. Fog of War, yeah, of the 2003. I mean, talking yeah. about out of the gate. Yeah, and it was around the same time. It was all, all in a row. It was Fade to Black and 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 what happened to Miss Simone happened later on. But Yeah, we became, we became quite prolific, um, you know, and, uh, and the programming began to follow that uh, from a reputational standpoint, docu-style programming became popular and that's where the uh, Sundance channel came in and invited us to uh, to launch iconoclast with them and so the you know the concept of uh, of, of entertainment was was not I'm not going to say out of uh, boredom of the advertising business but I've been in the ad business for a long time and and I knew we needed to diversify the company and I knew that uh, it wasn't going to be enough for me to uh, continue to service the ad business over all those years. Uh, Frank and I focused on, you know, 
the success of the ad business, parlaying that to being able to transform the company. And there were only a few commercial production companies that have been able to transform themselves as much as we have. Of course, there's Anonymous mm -hmm. uh, and the precursor to Anonymous being, uh, being uh, propaganda films. Yeah. You know, certainly uh, Sir Ridley Scott's had his success, yes. as I would say, but he very much ran Scott Free as a as a completely separate entity from RSA Films. Yeah. Um, but Radical, we like to keep it all under one roof. We have uh, four offices around the world. We're in New York, Los Angeles, and uh, London and Berlin now. We used to have an office in Shanghai. Uh, and we also had an office in Paris and and uh, and Sydney, Australia, yeah. at one point in time. But we we've uh, we've reduced our uh, our our footprint a little bit to focus on the work in the markets that are the most most uh, uh, viable for us as a company. Yeah, and 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 for me, it's like you know you 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 have all of that going on. And then in the middle of all of the unscripted stuff you were doing, going back to what we just spoke about before, you, you dove in headfirst into to capturing Broadway productions. Tell me the story of how that began. Am I correct in saying that Rent was the first one? Uh, that's that's uh, quite accurate. I, was, I wasn't sure if you were aware of that, but Rent was our first excursion. Um, we got to know uh, the producers of Rent uh, was Kevin McCollum and, and Jeffrey Sellers. Um, Sony had approached us. Uh, there was a division of Sony that was looking into this concept of, uh, of uh, creating what they called a hot ticket, which was gonna be uh, taking an, a, a super event like Rent, which was closing on Broadway after its uh, incredible run and legendary run. And uh, we filmed the final performances of Rent on Broadway, um, turned around and edited of it in ridiculous time. I don't know how we did that. Uh, it actually boggles my mind now. If you get to watch this uh, film, it's, it's really quite beautiful. It, I, I never like to think of those as capturing Broadway. I, I always have referred to them as cinematic interpretations of a Broadway show. So uh, we don't just film it like a television show. We obviously do starts and stops, work with the directors of the original productions and the shows. Um, Michael J. Warren worked with us back then, um, yeah. even on that project and we benefited from uh, having a relationship with the producers and trust of the talent that we were able to uh, take uh, an experience like Rent uh, after they had already made a movie of the of this production of Rent. Right. Which That's right. That's right didn't do very well and Sony distributed that movie. So this was kind of a little bit of a make good for the, uh, for the Larson family. And, uh, and, you know, it took a little bit of convincing that uh, capturing uh, the live entertainment in this cinematic interpretation that we were doing uh, was uh, considered sacrilege at the time, but um, actually uh, 
when we were just talking about it the other day, when we were screening some of the earliest rough cuts of the film with the cast and some of the creative team, uh, their jaws were all wide open because they had never really seen themselves performing quite like that before on Broadway. Broadway uh, normally only ever made what they called archive films uh, that are one of three camera films that captured a, fil a, a performance Actually. for the archives, but they didn't have anything that truly uh, captured the nuances of uh, an amazing performance. And in the case of Rent, with someone like Renee and, and some of the other uh, incredible talent that performed in that first, uh, in that final production of Rent. Uh, it was mind blowing, not only to see themselves, but to know for the Larson family, uh, and I'll never forget this, Jonathan Larson's father would call me every month for about six months, thanking us profusely for finally preserving his son's work and having something that he could continuously see of his son's work after the show had closed. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, from that one production, not only did we earn the trust of uh, the producers and Jeffrey became, uh, and Kevin have become really good friends. Uh, we went on to work on uh, In the Heights. We went on to uh, work on uh, Shrek at one point in its short-lived uh, Broadway career. We're actually dealing with one of the producers of Shrek right now on a very successful Broadway show that we're excited to be filming at one point next year. Mm -hmm. um, we, uh, we developed a great relationship with the cast and the creators of In the Heights. Uh, at the time, Lynn had uh, just uh, basically left Freestyle Love for Supreme, his troupe, for a period of time in which he was pursuing the script that he had written or the, the play that he had written uh, In the Heights, the musical. Uh, and we had the privilege of documenting uh, In the Heights from some of its earliest workshops all the way through to the night that it won the Tony Award. And uh, it was a great, great experience with the entire cast, uh, literally embedded in their bedrooms and in their apartments and waking up with them every day and following them as they all were young talent pursuing their careers on Broadway, which naturally uh, have become legendary since then. Each and almost every one of them is, uh, is now a star in their own right. Uh, we did a documentary for In the Heights that took a little bit of convincing of PBS, but it was a wonderful, uh, wonderful promotion of both the show and a great uh, insight into this young talent. Uh, we had already begun filming a little bit of Freestyle Love Supreme that uh, Andrew Freed, many years later, 15 years later practically, is uh, just released as a film on Hulu that, uh, that uh, Andrew was, was uh, sharp enough to recognize the, the talent back then and convinced me to, to, to uh, give him a ticket to Edinburgh to the Fringe Festival to, to film this troupe. So we Wonderful. created a... We created a great bond with the uh, with with that team, and uh, when Lin Manuel was writing Hamilton, he came to see me with Jeffrey to see if we thought there was another documentary in this new show he was doing around our founding fathers. 
And uh, we, we finally called it Looking for Hamilton, sort of as a reference to uh, Looking for Richard, that great, uh, that great Al, Cap uh, Al Pacino. Uh, yeah. Al Pacino film. Yeah. So this was, this was Lynn's, Lynn's writing of Hamilton and his pursuit of uh, putting the pieces together that eventually became, as we all know, the legend of, uh, of a show that uh, we followed as it went to the public theater and then uh, had the privilege of filming with the original cast uh, within the final two weeks of their performance. Uh, Jeffrey called me proudly with Lynn to say, we're going to do it. And we did the same thing for, for Hamilton that we had done for Rent. We literally kept that in our vault for, for four years until uh, Disney was able to persuade them to put it out during the pandemic. Wonderful. And, and, and this is a perfect transition, actually, because one of my favorite sort of live show films that goes back I mean, in, the, in, in 1984, when I started out in the business, I was a, I was a projectionist at a, at a repertory movie theater in Somerville, Massachusetts. And we used to show cult favorites constantly. And one of the films that we would show repeatedly annually every year wa was uh, uh, Stop Making Sense, which, lead, oh. which, which leads me, of course, to what you guys did with, with David Byrne that is, you know, once again, an iconic work that actually is now back on Broadway because it was off, but you guys shot this. And to me, it's perhaps Stop Making Sense is one of the perhaps one of the best live concert films I know of, right? And then you guys did what 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 he has going today. Stop making sense and the last waltz were both benchmark films in my right? career. You know, uh, for me, similarly to you, I could watch them over and over and over again. Yes. You know, uh, Jonathan did such an unbelievable job with stop making sense. Uh, David Burns' vision. Uh, then was 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 magnificent. Uh, you know, I, again, you know, for me, it was a, it was a, a benchmark. Uh, and when we were actually asked if we would be, you know, they, they were considering us for his most recent uh, Broadway show, American Utopia. Mm -hmm. To me, I looked at that as the opportunity of a lifetime, the bookend of Stop Making Sense. Yes. Uh, you know, I. I it was, uh, we, we uh, inherited uh, Spike with uh, David's choice of uh, director, which turned out to be a fantastic collaboration. We had worked with Spike before, and we certainly uh, were uh, proud to be able to support him and work with uh, Ellen Curis and, yeah. and filming it. Um, We've had a lot of experience at that point and were recognized by the various investors, et cetera, with our experience in executing not only the logistics of filming a Broadway show, but the, uh, the managing all of the, uh, the realities of uh, the unions and all of uh, what else you need to do to be able to successfully film on Broadway. Again, something we'll endlessly be proud of. For me, one of the proudest moments of, uh, of American Utopia is when I got the call from Gary Getzman, the original producer with Jonathan Demme of Stop Making Sense. Wow. Gary, Gary Getzman is uh, Tom Hanks' partner in Playtone today. Okay. And 
Uh, and right after Gary saw it in the first weekend it was released, he called me up and he said, well, you did it, kid. You know, it's, 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 it's as good as it gets. You know, for me, from Stop Making Sense to American Utopia, what a privilege to be a part of that uh, legend. And uh, David was fantastic to work with. The film turned out beautifully. And it's part of our repertoire of Broadway projects now. So thanks for adding that into the story. I, I, I couldn't miss it. I mean, I, for me, this is just the, the most delicious stuff. And, I, yeah. and, and the thing that I, I think of, because I'm, you know, my mind always swims around where I sort of originated from, which was between the producer and the distributor, because I dealt with so many distributors over the years, including the films that you guys made, like Fade to Black and Fog of yeah. War and all of that. But what, what happened in the cinema business, and I've, I've had guests like Ira Deutschman, Bob Bernie, and people who were in that world come on and talk about this, is that the, the cinema environment has also pivoted, right? So, so the ballet, uh, the opera uh, is brought to all parts of the country. I mean, I mean there are actually cases of, of the Metropolitan Opera playing in another part of the country where people pay $25 for a ticket and show up in tuxes. I mean, this is a, a, a 2D experience of an elegant event not available for people geographically. I, I I should be aware, but I'm not aware with all the stuff that you guys have done on the Broadway and each of these have they all been presented theatrically? I should know this. I don't. Or were they all done for streaming? I'm, I'm not aware. Well, well, you know, Hamilton was intended to be in theaters and uh, we suspect that Bob Iger convinced Lynn to uh, allow them to release it on the uh, during the first wave of the pandemic. I have to tell you, uh, the Broadway community was thankful, uh, so appreciative, uh, and so happy to see live theater at least being presented in as many homes as it was. So there was tremendous support and enthusiasm from the live theater uh, industry as it was closed down when yeah. Hamilton was first released. You right. know, could all, you could only wonder how Hamilton might have done if it had been in theaters. Right, for, I was going to say uh, right. But, you know, you can't imagine how many more millions of people have seen it. And it was attributed to a, a massive uh, increase in both subscriptions for Disney. Right. But Disney has admitted the, uh, the number of times people have viewed that uh, film is extraordinary. So for us, uh, you know, the world of streaming and video on demand uh, is, is obviously almost coming of age in this last few years as uh, as the standard bearer, uh, you know, as we're putting a uh, tipping our toe back in the water of going to the theater again. Uh, it is really nice to see a great movie in a theater. And I've recently gone to a few myself and, Wonderful. and Me too. thought how great it is and how much I miss it. Uh, but, uh, you know, the world has changed, technology has changed the world, and uh, the way people will view things now in mass is uh, quite different than it once might have been. Some films perhaps need an audience and need a theater. Some films perhaps do just as well on, uh, on a 
you know, a television in, a, in someone's home. I think that um, finding both is uh, where we ideally like to be. Uh, in the case of uh, American Utopia did have its uh, drive-in theater preview uh, premiere. Uh, Fantastic. The New York Film Festival. We, we opened the New York Film Festival uh, at the Queens parking lot and, and uh, it, by the World's Fair. And honked our, honked our horns as we uh, sat there uh, freezing on a cold night. Uh, we were supposed to premiere Summer of Soul uh, at the Sundance Film Festival, which sadly was canceled that year, uh, but was going to have its premiere at the Rose Bowl parking lot as an outdoor screening in uh, Los Angeles. And then the spike got so bad in Los Angeles that they canceled even the outdoor screenings in Los Angeles. So we had to settle for a virtual premiere of uh, Summer of Soul for when it premiered at Sundance. But when it was finally purchased by Fox Searchlight, mm -hmm. along with Onyx and Hulu, um, it, uh, it was partly a commitment to a theatrical release. Now, a theatrical release in the summer of 2021 was not necessarily the most exciting time for people to go to theaters. We weren't going out yet really to theaters ourselves and uh, not as many people were gonna be going out to see a documentary if they were gonna go to the theater. I, so I, I was one of those wacky people, but yes, you're, you're we, right, not, not many. Yeah, we had our fair share of wacky devotees. Thank you very much. But, uh, but it did have, and I think one of the proudest moments for um, both myself and Dave Sorelnik, my partner here in crime for, uh, for uh, Summer of Soul, Dave runs the entertainment group at Radical now as the president of, of entertainment. Uh, Dave Sorelnik and I always dreamed of the premiere of, of Summer of Soul uh, being back in the park in Harlem. And uh, for this past Memorial Day weekend, uh, thanks to the folks at Fox Searchlight and even our tapping into our relationship with one of our advertising partners, Target, uh, we were able to host the first public screening of Summer of Soul uh, with a live audience was in the park where it all happened. So, wow. you know, to be able to bring it back to that park. Uh, and of course it was, you know, Mount Morris Park in the day, but now is the Marcus Garvey Park uh, 50 years, 51 years later, 51 years later, we were back in the park, screening it for the community for a free screening of uh, Summer of Soul. And for us, that was in spite of a little bit of rain and everything else, an accomplishment that we couldn't have been more proud of. Uh, and it was so exciting to see it with that audience. Yeah, ab absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, 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 what a, what, what a tremendous way to launch. Yeah. For that. Yeah, it was, it was an exciting night and, you know, it's since had a good theatrical run, but not, as I said before, unfortunately, during a period of still uncertainty with the pandemic and not as many brave people who were willing to go out to watch a doc that they could watch yeah. on watch at home on Hulu. Exactly. So, uh, I mean, every, for people, me, over the for summer, people. it was Summer of Soul and, and Anthony Bourdain's Roadrunner that that made it out that that was you were able to see in theaters. But yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's just, well, yeah. 
our our luck uh, once again could have been could have been Hamilton in the theaters, could have been Summer of Soul in theaters. Uh, I suspect you know without a pandemic, we might have had two very successful uh, uh, theatrical runs. But um, but we'll take the we'll take uh, all the accolades. Winning an Emmy for the for Hamilton was quite nice. Uh, we competed against our own. American Utopia. Amazing. And, uh, you know, we had a little bit of a laugh about, you know, having two out of five five films in the category wasn't bad. We're enjoying that with Summer of Soul right now. It's competing even in the in the Grammys, it's been shortlisted against American Utopia. So, so we we are uh, sort of always uh, always competing against ourselves with some of our own product at this point. I love it. I love it. So Another sort of fun story for me anyway, because I, I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm, well, I think, as you know, I'm, I'm old friends with your, your, your director, Joe Berlinger for a lot of years. And, oh. and uh, uh, for the brief period that I was working as the GM over at Gigantic Studios, when we did the mix for the Ted Bundy tapes mm-hmm. at that time, it was the first moment that in my, in recent memory, where something that was now launched as a documentary was simultaneously being made as a feature, which extremely wicked, which you guys also did. Um, well, uh, uh, correction: we we uh, Joe did extremely wicked. Okay, uh, we were we were finishing uh, the Ted Bundy tapes for yeah. for Netflix while we were working on uh, while we were working on the four part series in the Ted Bundy tapes. Joe got called in for an audition to direct the feature film based on Ted Bundy. Right. Well, nobody, nobody could have been better prepared than Joe right. to Absolutely. go in and audition for that film because he knew more about uh, Ted Bundy than anybody possibly could have having Absolutely. prepped the Netflix show. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a funny thing. We were on the sort of final post-production uh, schedule for Ted Bundy tapes when the feature film sort of reared its uh, head and and uh you know as feature films go you never really get too excited because they come and they go and they might have might have happened it might not have happened but right uh magically uh the casting with Efron and and with yeah. Joe at the helm came yeah. together like that and by the way, the research that we had done and the archival work that we had done was practically all the homework that the production of Extremely Wicked needed to be able to do the exceptional job that Joe was able to, uh, to complete. So we, we were there in spirit for Joe for the movie. We were there physically finishing the Netflix series. Yeah. And uh, as if you remember, the Netflix series uh, dropped literally weeks before the uh, the movie itself was in theaters. So, uh, and then Netflix bought the, th- the film. So it yeah. was a, a great sort of uh, one-two punch uh, for uh, a unique combination of a multi-part series and a fictionalized film. Oh, yeah. Uh, same story. Well, well, my, I mean, it was for me uh, because of my viewing habit for that particular project. I, I, my girlfriend and I, uh, 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 tandem viewed, so yeah. we, we watched the doc and we went straight into the feature without with barely a break in between, 
and and, well, and I and I I gotta tell you, uh, 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 kudos to 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 all all sides, but theatrical. Yeah. Wow, they 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 really they captured something. Quite Joe, Joe really Joe really nailed it, and as a result, we're looking at other uh, scripted. Uh, we're working actually, we're developing a, a new scripted project for Joe that he's quite passionate about uh, that we're in the middle of uh, developing right now. So we're, um, and as Joe is uh, as prolific as he is in the true crime space. Oh yeah. Uh, obviously we, uh, we just announced uh, not just the, uh, the season two of crime scene, but uh, we picked up a season three and season four of crime scene, which just, just announced uh, we also have, uh, we, Joe is executive producing the, uh, we, we did the Jeffrey Epstein story yes. and yes, might right. be working on a little follow-up of that story. And we have a few other uh, crime-based shows that Joe is uh, extremely uh, in, engrossed in, but is also uh, looking forward to the relief of that with some new projects that we're doing that are quite a, a little bit less gory they're crimes of sorts, but not of the same uh, of the same genre. So we're right. uh, we're looking we're looking at expanding his vocabulary beyond his uh, beyond true crime, his true crime and paradise lost success. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's one of those uh, blessings that is a blessing in disguise, but it be it became sort of the hottest form of content. Uh, in general, right? I mean, it's, it's it sells like hockey. Yeah, there's a pretty big demand for it. Uh, we have a you know uh, several shows running at the same time for multiple platforms, uh, and I think ID yeah. dedicates itself to it, right? So there are channels and all that. I, like ID that. dedicated itself. We've had several shows on ID. We have several shows uh, coming up on. Uh, we just premiered a show on uh, Discovery the other day. We have shows more shows going on with Netflix and, uh, and a new one coming up on uh, Peacock as well. Oh, interesting. So yeah. apropos of television, let, let's, let's not forget one important program that I think we all remember and love that you were involved in its inception, Mad Men. And, 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 and I don't know, I love, I love this. The, 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 this is one of the great series of all time, but I, I, I don't have the story behind the story as to how you became involved, but who better to do Mad Men than the Mad Men themselves, right? I mean, you guys- Well, were, that was, that was part of it. Uh, at the time, we, um, we uh, were working on uh, continuing to expand our and diversify our reputations. Uh, there was a gentleman here, Jack Leshner, who was like a that. superb, superb uh, development executive, had been at Miramax with some of the legendary successes at Miramax, came to work here at Radical and was part of the team on Fog of War. And, uh, and Christina Wayne came in with uh, this script from a writer who'd been working on The Sopranos, uh, who uh, was uh, anxious to see if somebody would pick up his, uh, his own project uh, while he was writing with David Chase on the fifth and sixth seasons of, uh, of The Sopranos. And uh, we had the, the pr privilege of uh, reading the first draft of, uh, of the uh, episode 
pilot of uh, Mad Men and of course being a student of advertising and knowing uh, all of the fictionalized advertising agencies and stories that uh, Matt was, uh, was referring to in his uh, pilot script, I said, we've got to do this. This is like, this is not like uh, an option. We, we've got to make this, we've got to make this pilot. We didn't know that much about what we were doing in the area of uh, contracts and, uh, and, and relationships then. I will say that I still call it the big fish that got away, but we had an incredible amount of fun um, making uh, the offices here at Radical headquarters for the, uh, for the pilot episode, Emmy Award winning Smoke Gets in Your Eyes episode of Mad Men. We worked very closely with Matt. We brought together the team of Scott and everyone else who produced and art directed and filmed and directed the, uh, the first pilot. It was uh, a, a thrill to be part of it. It was a thrill to watch it uh, evolve here in our very offices. We had a lot of fun uh, in delivering that show. We, we had this crazy dream that um, nostalgically, we wouldn't only tap into the golden era of advertising, but uh, we would even tap into the golden era of advertising and find a single sponsor who would become the brand associated with this uh, great show. And, and Matt was totally into the idea of a Hitchcock-like character who could tell you the moral of the story of each episode and get rid of the uh, traditional advertising uh, uh, breaks that needed to take place on, uh, on the AMC network. Um, unfortunately, what we never calculated is uh, how excited the ad salespeople at AMC were going to be to finally have a show that they could go out and sell against. And there was no way they were going to settle to have a single sponsor. But we were really, we, we got pretty close. And I'm often, when uh, Josh Sapen, who went on to become the CEO of AMC, would introduce me, he'd also, he'd always often say, you know, we kind of owe John one, you know, because all we did was that first episode. Matt wanted to move back to California. Lionsgate took over the show. Even AMC at a certain point got taken out of the loop in that Lionsgate bought the show. They deficit financed it. We didn't really... Uh, have a leg to stand on. They flicked us off the producer line. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I miscalculated. I thought that Matt wanted to become a New Yorker. His wife at the time was having a very successful architectural career in Los Angeles. And he wanted to go back to better weather and uh, a more hospitable place. And they'd just come and do some, you know, B-roll here in New York to fill in the New York scenes. But the original episode of Mad Men was produced here in New York. Yeah, fascinating. And, cast in, our, and cast in our offices, which was, uh, was, was a, a whole lot of fun. Amazing. Um, let's take a, a, a slight left turn because I don't want to leave out something I know even less about than, than these other stories, uh, uh, which I didn't actually know all of the detail of. Yeah. Um, your relationship with NASA and the mission to Mars. Talk, uh, talk to me. Well, it, you know, it was before the mission to Mars. We were actually working with NASA. A, a very uh, dear friend of mine, a family friend, um, a guy by the name of Scott Bolton, is uh, an investigator for uh, chief investigator for for 
at one point the Jet Propulsion Lab and for NASA and the way NASA assigns missions. Uh, probably about 12 years ago, I was at my niece's wedding, uh, sitting next to Annie Lennox and Scott Bolton. And of course, we know what Annie was up to then, 12 years ago. But we both turned to Scott and said, what are you up to, Scott? And he said, well, I'm getting ready to do a mission to Jupiter. And was like, what? And he started explaining to us how he was planning this mission Juno for NASA to uh, explore the planet of Jupiter. And uh, we started getting involved in that. Actually, shortly after, after we produced Fog of War and won the Academy Award, a guy named Elon Musk called me and invited me to what? He invited me out to his factory in Hawthorne, California, and wanted to know if Errol was interested in doing a documentary about him going to Mars. And I remember coming back from uh, the meeting with Elon. Er Errol didn't even go with me because we didn't even know who, we knew who Elon was. He was the PayPal guy who now wanted to go to Mars. But I remember my first conversation with him as he literally just had like parts and pieces of rockets on a, on a, on a, on the floor of a, of a, uh, of a, a hangar. Um, <laughs> and he was telling me that he was going to be building rocket ships to go to Mars. And I was like, well, that's really great. When do you think you're going to do that? And, you know, it was sounded like it was about another 20 years away and he didn't really, you know, want to pay for the documentary, but he wanted to see if we wanted to make the documentary. And we kind of, uh, politely passed being that we didn't believe this guy was for real in terms of his uh, his uh, space exploration. We knew that he was uh, we knew he was crazy, but we didn't think he'd ever get as far as he would get. Ironically, you know, fifteen years later, uh, somebody at uh, Fremantle, who was our partner at the time, had approached us uh, that Elon was interested in doing a documentary about SpaceX. Uh, and one of my partners, Justin Wilkes, at the time, yeah. um, met with him. I said, you know, I met with him 10 years, 15 years before. He, you know, he wanted to do the same thing, but he doesn't want to be in it. And he didn't want to pay for it. <laughs> uh, it was like, well, who the hell is going to make a documentary about SpaceX if, you, if, if you're not even willing to be in it? Um, he, uh, he, he acquiesced a little bit and he said, well... You know, if you could get like, you know, James Cameron or Ron Howard to to uh, to direct it, maybe I'll be in it. And uh, little did he know, we we knew that James was kind of busy with whatever success he had had with uh, Avatar or wherever he was going next. But we had a relationship with Ron Howard. We had made uh, Made in America with Jay-Z and Ron Howard. Um, uh, and uh, we knew that Ron had interest in doing documentary films from the Jay-Z experience. Yep. So we weren't afraid to call Brian Grazer and, and Ron and see if they were interested. So poor Elon was now stuck that we actually had Ron Howard in our pocket. <laughs> um, and then, you know, as things happen in New York and only New York, I got invited to a uh, 
a signing, uh, book signing for a uh, friend of mine's book at Michael Bloomberg's foundation. And I went up to, uh, to the signing. It was actually uh, one of David Rockwell's books. And David is a very dear friend. He's the architect of our offices, and a house of mine. So uh, I'm up at the signing and I bump into another old friend of mine, a guy by the name of Stephen Petranek, who's who's a uh, well-known science author and a, uh, a well-known science editor. And I hadn't seen him for many, many years. We had toyed around about doing a television series with him based on a TED talk he had given on the 10 ways in which for sure the world is going to end. Um, and we couldn't sell that show. But I you know, asked Stephen what he was up to. And he said, well, I'm I'm writing a book about how we're going to live on Mars. And I said, well, that's funny. We're, we're talking to Elon Musk uh, about making a documentary about uh, his pursuit of going to Mars. And he said, well, I'll be just about the guy who's going to do it. If anybody's going to do it, I think it's Elon. And I'm going to be going out to see Elon in uh, like the next week or something and to talk to him about uh, my book. His book, which he slipped me a copy of, was uh, based on a new TED talk he was going to do about how we were going to live on Mars. And I was flying out to L.A. reading a manuscript of the book with my hand shaking and Justin Wilkes was sitting next to me. And I turned to Justin and I said, Justin, this is our television series. This isn't a movie. This is a television series based on the factual information that Stephen was laying out in the book. And so season one that we sold to uh, National Geographic was based on Stephen's book. And uh, we really truthfully started out in a hybrid model of part documentary, part scripted. While we were making it, Nat Geo was asking us for more and more scripted and we started adapting it accordingly. But uh, that was a fun, a fun mission and it led to a second season. And I still say that we should have continued, but there've been many other different versions of it since then. Interesting, interesting. Um, I ran across something that I didn't know that you guys were doing on, it's a, I think it's a channel on, on YouTube called, it, it, it's- Thinker. A, Thinker, it's an abbreviation of Thinker. Yeah, T-H-N-K-R on Thinker. We have over a million subscribers. Wow. We've had a couple hundred million views. It started as an experiment with Google when they wanted to create premium channels and they seeded it. We're still trying to figure out what to do with it, but we had a lot of fun with it and it's still growing to this day. We've continue adding a little bit to it, but we have more things to come on Thinker because uh, not that many people can boast over a million subscribers. And yeah. we've had a couple of amazing viral fun films that have uh have made it to the thinker platform that's fabulous yeah i'm fascinated by it of course because i i mean i th this show is on on my little youtube channel but i'm i've all i love to see these viral successes it's uh, absolutely fantastic um i i'm gonna wind back the clock because there is one thing i didn't know about in your relationship with the Rhode Island School of Design, where I have yeah. many of my old homies, Bob Jungles and Peter O'Neill and people that I know that, that taught there. 
um, you're on a, a a board there with I think Eileen Chaikin, I believe, who's also Eileen is the author of uh, The Handmaid's Tale and right. currently working with uh, Dick Wolf on uh, on his series. Uh, we've uh, I, I my son got me into RISD. Uh, it's a, this is the reverse story. I am a, almost a uh, almost a high school and college dropout, but I'm I'm the vice chair of the board of uh, the Rhode Island School of Design. I might oh, tell you. How interesting! Yeah, and, uh, and it's my son who got me into RISD. My son was an industrial design student, and I was invited up to RISD to lecture. And the then president of the school said, "Would you ever consider joining our board?" and I felt like the scarecrow in uh, The Wizard of Oz. I finally got a brain. Uh, I don't have a degree, but I, but being on the board made me feel as if I kind of have one. And 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 uh, I get to work with some extraordinary people on the board. And it's uh, we've uh, accomplished a lot. We have a lot more to accomplish, but we have a, an incredible board. Yeah, and it's a uh, very very rewarding work in terms of. Uh, what we do as a company and how we uh, function as a company. Yeah, it's a very important place. I mean, I, I knew a lot of film animators out of there over the years and, and filmmakers. Yeah, we've out of there. Yeah, yeah. got several graduates from the school who work for us. Josh Pearson, the extraordinary editor of uh, Summer of Soul and What Happened, Miss Simone. Uh, Josh was a fine art student at RISD and uh, now one of the great documentary editors of all time. Wow. Interesting. Um, another important topic that I like to at least land on once in every episode. It's important I, for me anyway. I, I, a career is, is ups and downs and challenges and fights and battles. Uh, uh, I always, when I, when I look at you and Frank, I, I see a, a, a straight arrow uh, uh, to, to, into the stratosphere because it always looks like, like the journey that you guys took. Uh, almost had no bumps in the road at all. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what the challenges of building after you left working with or for someone or with someone to be creating your own company and what what some of the uh, uh, the the ups and downs were in building the business. Well, I mean, I did work for some people, but. When I partnered with Sandbank, I was really kind of creating a company as Sandbank Films, Sandbank came in and partners. So I, 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 I'd been running a company a very long time uh, and, uh, and reinventing that company as radical was just an extension of, uh, of what I had done. Right. Frank and I uh, met, uh, Frank worked in the advertising business uh, he uh, lived here in New York and worked for the legendary Jay Shiat. Uh, oh, so he was, an, he was an agency guy. Okay. He was an agency guy. He, he moved out to California. And uh, when he was moving out there, I told him to keep in touch. And famously, this guy every three months would actually call me. I couldn't believe that he actually listened, you know, that he, he, he was keeping in touch. But at one point, he knew that Sandbank and I were contemplating opening a Los Angeles office. And um, he approached me uh, with the possibility of perhaps he could, uh, he could run that office. And uh, I had a famous uh, walk through the Museum of Modern Art with uh, Frank telling him uh, how important our integrity was to us 
as a company and that uh, if he were going to do that uh, job with us and for us, uh, how important it was for him to continue to uh, extend that reputation to the West Coast. Uh, 30 something years later, Frank and I are still partners and uh, it's it just an exceptional job that he's done. And I couldn't be more proud of him as the chairman of the Television Academy. And now, you know, both of us uh, were at one point in time chairman of the Commercial Industries Association, AICP. Yeah. Frank has extended that to becoming the chairman of the Television Academy. And wow. it's quite an interesting uh time for him he's done a great job um they've had their work cut out for them as well and during this pandemic and with all of the uh challenges of the industry he's done a fabulous job of leading the television academy so much so that he's been re-elected as the uh chairman just the other day for another two years wow that's fantastic so, fantastic and uh you know as partners uh we love each other very much. We're, uh, we have the benefit of being on two separate coasts. So, uh, you know, as he always puts it, uh, we've been partners for 30 years and 3,000 miles might have a lot to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Um, All right. Um, one last thing. I know you you, you do have yeah. cut out at five, but um, your... Uh, you you were I mean I was born here in New York but you were you're a, a New Yorker by origin um, yeah your 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 mom and dad uh, Saul and, and and Harriet what 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 were the uh, uh, the, the the their influences and 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 what what was their I mean the sort of role in 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 perhaps the the some of the decisions to do what you do today. Uh, back uh, when you were growing up as a kid in, 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 here in New York? Well, I obviously am blessed with having had the most amazing family and parents. Uh, I was one of four boys, uh, the youngest of four boys. My uh, father was a, a, a dentist in Queens and my mother was a school teacher. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, again, the values that they instilled on us, they were... Uh, extremely liberal, very, uh, very progressive in their thoughts. They shared that with us as children and encouraged us to pursue our dreams. They never really railroaded us into any one direction. So uh, not uh, by accident, but uh, by choice, my oldest brother did become a dentist, uh, as all good children follow their father's footsteps. Uh, but uh, my other brother, Michael, became a composer and pursued his musical career. Another brother who today is a doctor uh, pursued uh, his musical career at the High School of Musical and Art. And my father always used to kid around that uh, my oldest brother became the dentist, played the guitar. My brother Michael played piano and oboe. My brother Lenny, who's a doctor, played the trumpet. And his youngest son, Johnny, played the TV. And I'm still playing the TV today. So uh, little Johnny came and uh, just never learned to play an instrument. I just learned how to play the TV. Well, well, we're we're in the same band, so I I I, I, I enjoy that so much. And I, I know that you 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 you've run out of time, and and uh, we could talk endlessly. But I, I cannot thank you enough for 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 uh, uh, joining me on on yet another episode of of, of my show. 
and uh, well, thank you, Charlie. And you've done more homework on me than I may have remembered myself. <laughs> okay. Have a great day. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank and we'll you. look forward to seeing you on the podcast. Yes. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye for now. The Pod Matrix.